Bibles now, open them please to the book of Luke chapter 2. Just two days away from Christmas now. How many of you are excited about Christmas coming? Uh, you know, it's funny, all the adults raised their hand, I didn't see any kids. What's that all about? All right, we got some, some of the children are excited about Christmas, and it is a lot, it's really a, a fun holiday. It's going to be unusual for us this year. We, we have two daughters pregnant at the same time. And they're going to be home for Christmas. There are other ladies in the church that are also about ready or will be delivering in the next uh, six or seven months or so having babies. Uh, Eric and Lucy are are pregnant and uh, Jason and Sheila. Donna Chambly next month, maybe sooner, we don't know. Uh, My two daughters, uh, Margaret uh, back here is, is going to have a baby as well. And it's really an exciting time to think about having a baby. And... I look forward to next Christmas, as I said, because we have two daughters that are pregnant. And uh, instead of having just my wife and I and the grown kids around, next week we're going to have, or next week, next year, we're going to have three little ones running around for Christmas time. And I'm really looking forward to that. That's going to be a wonderful time. This evening I like to think about uh, the birth of Jesus, and you might expect that on this evening. But I want to talk and concentrate mostly on the delivery I was uh, present for the delivery of my children. <laughs> if I said that I wasn't, I don't know what kind of reaction I would have got out of that. But I was present for that. Uh, when Elisa was born, uh, Clarissa's baby, I was there for that. And some of the ladies in the church, when you've had babies, uh, I was around the hospital at that time that babies were born. And I like to think about that. Well, we're going to talk about the birth of Jesus tonight, but I'm going to concentrate mostly on the delivery. And it was a very special delivery, a very timed delivery. We're going to talk about that this evening as we read from the book of Luke. So if you'd stand with me, please. We're looking at Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. We're going to read just a portion of the Christmas story this evening, beginning in verse number 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child." And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Heavenly Father, once again, we come before you and and we do just thank you for this wonderful time of year that we can think about the birth of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for this blessed event and what it means to us as your people. And we just pray, Lord, you you just help as we uh, talk about this tonight. Speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Last uh, month, just before Thanksgiving, we got a call from our daughter in Kentucky, Lauren. She had an announcement for us. You really have to know Lauren to uh, appreciate Uh, some of the things she says and the way that she says them and the tone of her voice. But uh, I answered the phone and she said, well, dad, we're going to have a baby. And it was just sort of a dead pound announcement just like that. But that was really good news. I mean, to to have a baby. Then we were going down to San Diego for Thanksgiving and and, uh, Clarice and Jason also had some news for us. 
uh, only they didn't want to tell us themselves. Instead, they wanted Elisa to tell us. Well, she can't talk, of course. So they dressed Elisa up and they uh, had her pajamas on her. And then they had a dress over top of her pajamas that said, I'm going to be a big sister. Well, my wife and I were in the house there playing with her for probably two hours or longer. And we never noticed this dress that she was wearing. And so finally, uh, Clarissa thought, these people must be dense or something. So who wouldn't recognize that you don't normally put a dress on top of pajamas? And uh, so she said, she told us that they were going to have a baby. And of course, again, that was very, very good news. Well, what we learned is that we have two daughters that are pregnant, and they are going to be delivered only two days apart, according to their due dates. Well, that presents somewhat of a problem for us. And you would think that Uh, two of them having uh, due dates in the same family two days apart, that this really took some precise planning. They really had to get their heads together and figure out how in the world they were going to make this happen. But what we come to find out is they didn't really have any collusion at all over the matter. They'd never even talked about this. And so just by chance that this is what happened. Well, that is really in stark contrast to what happened when Jesus was born. And when Jesus was born, it was a very precisely timed and determined event. And neither Mary and Joseph timed it, because if either one of them had had chosen the time for this delivery, uh, they certainly would not have chosen the time that it was. Joseph wouldn't have chosen it. I mean, Joseph, I'm sure, would have preferred to have a much later time, because he would have been married to Mary by that time, and he wouldn't have to face all those questions that are out there. And uh, people that thought that what was happening here, uh, you know, they were making up a story, and, and they thought that they had been unfaithful and, and done, uh, committed some kind of a sin in this. And then Mary, I don't think that she would have chosen this time either. I mean, she would have chosen a much later time because she also had to face those questions and people talking about this and thinking that she was a loose, immoral woman because she was pregnant without being married. But it, 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 it had had to have this, this special quality about it. It had to have the work of God in this to make these two people come together and, and to, for God to speak to their hearts and work with them and to bring this baby into the world in the manner in which it came. So neither Mary or Joseph, probably they wouldn't have chosen this particular time. They wanted sufficient time to have gone by that no no one would be able to question. They would already be married. No one would be able to question uh, the birth of this baby. But now we come in our story here. It's nine months later. It's time for the delivery. Mary is going to have the baby, and Joseph is not the father. So it's not the time that they would have chosen. But we do want to talk about the delivery uh, this evening. First of all, the father showed his providence in the delivery. And by his father, I I don't mean Joseph. This morning we talked about Joseph being his earthly father. But now we're concentrating on the real father of this baby. That was the heavenly father. It was the heavenly father who overshadowed Mary, who came upon her and implanted in her the seed of the Holy Ghost and and this baby was born. You know, it's a very interesting thing about uh, the wording of this. When the angel came to Mary, she wondered how this would take place. And uh, the Bible says, and the angel spoke to her and said that the Holy Ghost shall overshadow thee. And what's interesting about that is that that's the same language 
And, and the same type of wording and the same meaning is used all the way back in the book of Genesis in the first chapter when it talks about the Spirit of God moving upon the waters and so forth in creation. And so this is the way that the Holy Spirit came upon Mary. And the Heavenly Father made sure that both Mary and Joseph were in the exact place where this birth was to take place. Galatians tells us, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman. My wife and I have been discussing between ourselves uh, how we're going to be in two places at one time for the birth of these two babies. Clarice and Lauren live 2,300 miles apart with babies that are coming two days apart, and we're wondering how are we going to work this out. So we made a suggestion. We thought that the best thing for them to do was to come to Santa Rosa. And both of them could stay with us, and then they could have their babies, and everybody be right here together. But they're not buying that. They're not going to do it. Well, that's a difficult thing for us to do, be in two places at one time so far apart. But logistically, what Mary and Joseph had to do was also very difficult, because they had to be in a different place. I'll get this thing straightened up here. They had to be in a different place uh, in order for this, uh, this birth to, to take place. They couldn't be in Nazareth where they lived. Actually, it would be easier for me and, and faster for me to travel 550 miles to San Diego and be there in time for the delivery of Clarice's baby or to travel 2,300 miles to Kentucky to be there for the birth of Lauren's baby. I could do that much faster than Mary and Joseph could travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. It's a 70-mile journey, and it probably took at least three to four days, maybe as long as a week for them to get there. And uh, so it was a, a difficult thing for them to do. But they had to be in Bethlehem for this delivery. I mean, just as Santa Rosa is not an option for us, Nazareth was not an option for Mary and Joseph. Bethlehem, that's the place where this birth must take place. Well, I want to show you in this, first of all, this evening, that this birth was planned from the beginning. I mean, the reason that it had to take place in Bethlehem, because it was planned from the very beginning. And when I say the beginning, I'm not talking about the beginning of Mary and Joseph's engagement. And I'm not talking about the beginning of Mary and Joseph's life, even. Their parents might have said, you know something? When these children get older, they'll have children, too. I'm not talking about that. We have to go back much, much further than that. We have to go all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But really, that's not even far enough because we have to go back even before that, even before there were any people in this world, this birth had already been planned. So there were no people in the world when this decision was made. It was a birth that was planned from the foundation of the world. You know, there are a lot of people that are confused about this. Uh, People think that when God made Adam and Eve and put them in the Garden of Eden, that God fully intended that Adam and Eve would stay in the Garden of Eden. But then Adam did something that God totally unexpected. Uh, uh, Adam decided that he would sin against God. He ate of that forbidden fruit, and so he fell. And then God's perfect plan for humanity had all gone horribly wrong. Well, that's actually a false view of Scripture. God knew perfectly well what Adam would do. There weren't any unforeseen circumstances as far as God was concerned. 
And so people who think that God had to hastily put together a plan because Adam did the wrong thing and God didn't know what would happen, so God put this plan together. He hastily ran over and said, you know something, son? He says to Jesus, you've got to go to the world and you've got to straighten up this mess. You're going to have to do something about it. It's a totally wrong picture. God knew from the very beginning what Adam would do. Now, Adam did exactly what he wanted to do. He made his own choice in the matter, but what Adam did worked perfectly within the plan of God. And so before Adam was ever created, God knew that Jesus would come. In fact, there was a covenant of redemption that was established before the foundation of the world. Before time ever began, there was a covenant between the Father and the Son. And this covenant said that there would be some who would be given to the Son as trophies of the Father's grace and that, the whole, and that Jesus Christ would come into the world and he would infallibly redeem those who were given to him by the Father. Even before Jesus went to the cross, he made mention of this pre-Adamic covenant. We find it in John chapter 17. Jesus is speaking and he says, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son that thy son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work that thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And so this was the planning of God from the very beginning. And then we can go back to the Garden of Eden, and we can see something there in what's called the Proto-Evangel. And the Proto-Evangel is actually the very first time that the gospel is given in Scripture. It's in Genesis 3.15. Uh, God is speaking to Satan, and he says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And that was a prediction of the coming of the Messiah, the proto-evangel. And that was the very first time the gospel was preached. So who was the very first preacher of the gospel? It was none other than God himself. God is the one who gave this. And this occurred all the way back in the Garden of Eden. So God's providence was at work to make sure that 4,000 years later, everything would go as planned. The baby is coming. But we notice by the things that I've just said here that there is no indication about where this was going to take place. Well, this was a birth that was planned from the beginning, but also it was a birth that was prophesied for centuries. The exact place where this would happen was prophesied. I don't have time tonight to go into all the prophecies concerning it, but the clearest one that we have in the Scripture, and in fact, this is the one that the, that the priest used, the Scripture the priest went to, to tell Herod where the Christ would, or the Messiah would be born. It's in Micah chapter 5. There it says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is, to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. And so that meant that Mary and Joseph had to go from Nazareth, Nazareth to Bethlehem. This is simply not an option. Now here is Mary. She's nine months pregnant, and it's not a journey that anyone in their right mind would undertake. I mean, today we tell mothers that are nine months pregnant, even before that we say, don't travel, don't even get on an airplane. But here Mary is nine months pregnant, and she has to climb aboard a donkey. 
And she has to ride all the way 70 miles to get to Bethlehem. How many of you ladies would try that, being nine months pregnant? Most of you probably wouldn't do it. So what, what is it that would bring Joseph to such a decision? Why would he put Mary through such a thing? And why, why would he risk the health of the mother and the health of the baby to do this? Well, there had to be a mandate. Something has to cause him that there's no other way that he can get around this. He absolutely must do this. And so nothing is going to move him but a strict order of necessity. And in fact, that's what God provided. Our text tells us here that an order was given that all the world should be taxed. Every family had to return to the place of their ancestry. Mary and Joseph were both Judeans. They were of the house and lineage of David. And so that meant they had to go to Bethlehem in order to be taxed. They have to return to Judea. Why? Again, it's for the taxation. That's an order of the Roman government. But more particularly than being an order of the Roman government, this is the way that God perfectly orchestrated things. It was prophesied about this. God's word can't be broken. And so God's providence made sure Mary and Joseph are going to be in the very right place that they should be in order for the delivery to take place. Well, what else can we talk about the delivery? Well, secondly, we can see that the Son of God was the person in the delivery. What son was he? God's own son. God sent his own son into the world. And that's because only his son would do. No one else would do. A virgin birth was necessary. And God made sure this came about. This birth came about in not a normal way, but a very different way. You see, Jesus could not have a sinful nature. He couldn't be born with a sinful nature. Otherwise, he would be a sinner. And he would need a savior himself. Well, God chose a virgin in order that the sinful nature that comes through the seed of the man would not be passed on to this baby. And so he was born of a virgin. Now, men, we like to think a lot of times about how superior that we are to women, how inferior women are to us. Well, here's one thing we've got going against us. And that is, we are the ones who passed the sinful nature along to our children. That's why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. The sinful nature is passed on from the father to his children. And so there has to be a birth that's unlike any other birth that ever happened in in the whole history of the world. So Jesus became the Savior with no sinful nature. He lived an entire life without committing even one single sin. Well, what else did God the Father do? Or what did he tell Jesus, or what did he call Jesus to do? Well, we see here that he was called to live among us. The plan that God put into place was a plan in which Jesus Christ came into the world to live among us. In other words, he didn't appear for just a few hours upon the earth and just bequeath salvation to everyone. Jesus didn't speak from the throne and say, well, now all sinners are pardoned. Jesus was not able to do that. All men are sinners, and so Jesus had to come and to satisfy the penalty of law for everyone who is a sinner. And so Jesus came to this world. He lived a perfect life among us, and what Jesus did was to earn the righteousness that we need to be right with God. Now, the Bible teaches that we need perfect righteousness. There's a standard of perfect righteousness that we all have to live to, and there's not one of us who can live up to that standard And so Jesus had to come to keep the law for us, and then he could transfer to us this righteousness that we need. Now, that's what the Bible calls imputation. 
This, this, was, this righteousness of Christ is Im, imputed to us through our faith in the, in the sacrifice of Christ. But not only did Jesus come to live among us, he was also chosen to die for us. He was God's chosen person to die. Now again, God's law has to be satisfied. And God's law says that all lawbreakers have to die. That's the curse of sin. The curse of sin is death, physical death and spiritual death. Uh, There is a curse put upon us because of the laws of God. Deuteronomy 27 says, Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words to... uh, Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of the law to do them. So Christ had to become a curse for us. He took the curse of death upon himself and he was made a sin offering for us. In Galatians 3 verse 13, the scripture says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And so Jesus was taken to the cross. He hung there and he bled there in order to satisfy this curse. And he was a voluntary recipient of the curse. Jesus was not coerced into it. He was chosen for the work, but he voluntarily came. He did this willingly. He suffered willingly so that everyone who had put their faith in him would not have to suffer eternal death. Well, this baby was a boy. He was the son of God. He was delivered into the world by his birth. And then scripture tells us he was delivered up to the cross to die for our sins. Romans says, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Now, there's somebody else also that I want you to see in the delivery. And if we're going to talk about the birth of a baby, we have to talk about the mother, don't we? So that's the next one. The virgin performed well in the delivery. She was a young mother. Scriptures don't tell us exactly how old that Mary was. Most people believe that she was less than 20 years old when Jesus was born. And we know in those days that they didn't have all the medicines that we have today. Uh, They didn't have all the helps that, that we have today. And when Jesus was born, Mary had to go through a very painful childbirth. Remember when Clarissa, that's the most recent one or fresh in my mind, when Clarissa was having her baby, that uh, I think it was about every five minutes, where's the epidural? And it just kept going on like, where's the epidural? Well, I don't know that we could really even comprehend how much faith that it took, how much courage that it took for Mary to go through this birth. She had to be thinking of, of her own body and thinking, I'm a virgin, a virgin, and I'm going to have a baby. I mean, this is an impossible thing. And she couldn't see that unless the Holy Spirit spoke to her and gave her guidance in this. How would she go through those nine months of skepticism about the birth? But here's what we see about her. She gave birth without fear. She was outstanding in this performance. I mean, here... She made a a nearly impossible journey for a nine-month pregnant woman. When she was ready to deliver, there was no doctor there. There was no midwife there. There's no comfortable room for her to have the baby in. She had the baby in a stable. And that's because there was no one even willing uh, to give up a room in the inn for a pregnant woman. And so Mary had to go through a very terrible birth. But I believe as she did, the, the, the words of the angel echoed in her ears. Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Most of us would think, some favor? I mean, why can't I have this baby at home? Why can't I have this baby in comfort? I mean, why do I have to go through this? 
But I think Mary received strong encouragement from the angel. Probably the best words that anybody has ever heard before. The strongest encouragement that she could get. And so she gave birth without fear. And God blessed her to give her a unique baby. One different from any other child that was ever born. And today we still remember Mary for her faithfulness and the way that she went through this childbirth. Well, she was rewarded and she was blessed because next we see she was given the firstborn. The Bible says, and she brought forth her firstborn son. Something very important for us to remember about this, that when Luke recorded this, it wasn't like he was the doctor. He was a doctor, but he wasn't there. He wasn't there for the birth of Jesus to record these events. These things were written down about 60 to 70 years after it happened. Now, notice the language that he uses. He says, this was her firstborn son. And that's in contradistinction to other children that she would have. It doesn't say she brought forth her only son. And that's exactly the wording that Luke would have used if if Mary didn't have any other children. But she brought forth a firstborn son. And the Bible tells us that Mary did have other children. Uh, This Roman Catholic doctrine that said that Mary remained a perpetual virgin is preposterous. The Bible mentions the names of his brothers. So Mary had other children. But it was very important here that he's described as the firstborn because with these other children, this shows us or confirms the virgin birth of Jesus. Now, if, if the other children that Mary had had also been virgin born then they would have been sinless, just like Jesus was. So Mary had later children, but Jesus was the firstborn, and that confirms her virginity. But more important here, when the Bible talks about being the firstborn, it's to understand that Jesus is the first in rank and first in importance. In Romans, Jesus is called the firstborn of many brethren, and that means that he holds a higher rank than all the, other, all the others who believe in him. And then in Colossians 1.15, he's called the firstborn of every creature. And that speaks about his preeminence in creation. Not that he was created, but that he stands in an eternal relationship with God the Father. And then he's also called the firstborn from the dead. We find that in Colossians 1 verse 18. And of course, we know that that can't mean that he was the first one to rise from the dead because there are examples in the Old Testament of other people who, who rose from the dead. But Jesus was the first one to rise from the dead with power, under his own power, and the first one that never had to die again. So he's the firstborn from the dead. So Mary brought forth a child that was unlike any other child. Then the Bible says that she took this child, she wrapped him in swaddling clothes. And what that shows us is the love that Mary had for this child. The Bible teaches that he was God's son, but he was also Mary's son. And so she lovingly took this baby and she wrapped him. Now, she didn't yet know all of the sorrow that she would go through in her life. She didn't know what all the things that would happen because of Jesus. But right now, all that she sees is this little bitty baby boy. And she wants him to be as comfortable as possible. Now, he was going to have to go through a lot of things. But at this particular point, she wants the baby to be comfortable. And it's not too much a stretch of the imagination to think that uh, Joseph and uh, thinking in our minds and imagining that Joseph took some straw and put it down into that manger, that feed box, and gently helped her to lay that baby there in order that he might be comfortable. But the thing about Jesus is that comfort is not what he was going to be known for. 
During his life, the Bible says he had no home to call his own, no place to lay his head. And that actually brings me to the last observation concerning delivery, and that is that the manger was God's place for the delivery. This was God's own son. But God didn't provide him any accommodations that would tell us what kind of child this would actually be. It wasn't an indication of who Jesus really was. Now, when our children were born, we went to check out the facilities. We went to the hospital and see if this is a place where we want our children to be born. And I'm sure all of you as parents, you ladies, uh, you probably did the same thing. You weren't going to take your baby or have your baby in a place that was dirty. And so you go to the hospital, you check out the maternity ward, you see if everything is bright and shiny and clean, you check out the floors to see if they're clean, check out the beds and make sure they've got uh, fresh linen on the beds. Everything is going to be exactly right because you want your baby to be born in the most comfortable place possible. But God had plenty of time to make arrangements to have Jesus born in a very accommodating place. But God, in fact, did not do that. God chose a very different place for this child to be born. So God didn't choose Herod's palace. He didn't choose the finest homes in, in uh, that area of the country in order for Jesus to be born. Instead, God chose a stable. Most people believe it was just a cave, a place where they would bed down animals. And Jesus was born there and put into a feeding trough. Well, why didn't God choose a much better place for the delivery of the child? Two reasons, I think. Probably more, but we'll give you two reasons tonight. The first one is that it spoke of condescension. If Jesus had been born as a prince, then there would be people who would look at him and they would look at his surroundings and they would say, well, no wonder he did so well. No wonder he lived a sinless life. He didn't have to have or didn't go through all the disadvantages that I've gone through. He doesn't know what my life is like. He doesn't know what struggles that I go through. He was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. So no wonder Jesus did so well. But not even in his birth did Jesus have an advantage. There are many people who think that the way to get people to stop being sinners is change their environment. Give them a better education. Provide good things for people. And then people will turn out to be good people. And so the reason why that people are sinners is because of all the disadvantages that they have. But the Bible teaches that the reason that people are sinners is because they're born sinners and because they choose to be sinners. So nobody can look at Jesus and say, well, he had all the advantages of life. And so it wasn't so hard for Jesus to live such a righteous life. No one can make that claim because Jesus came from a bad environment. And the Bible also tells us that he grew up in a city that was one of the worst in Israel. He didn't stay in Bethlehem. He was there for a little while, but then his parents moved north. They went back to Nazareth. Do you remember when Jesus was calling his disciples that when Nathanael heard about Jesus, what did he say? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And so Jesus did not have a good environment And yet he came from the worst of places and he was able to live a perfect, sinless life. So Jesus stepped down from the splendor of heaven. He was made the lowest of the low. He made himself of no reputation. He accepted the contempt of men. And then he humbly went to the cross. But then also the manger speaks of contradiction. 
An animal born in a stable, that's not a contradiction, is it? That's what we expect. But a baby born in a manger? A prince born in a manger? That's not what we expect at all. And Jesus being born in a manger was a contradiction because it showed us how he was going to be treated throughout his life. We would expect that someone who came to this world, who came here to heal, who came to bind up the brokenhearted, who came to save people from their sins, that he would be treated in a much different way than Jesus was treated. But in every way that Jesus should have been treated, he wasn't. And in every way he shouldn't have been treated, he was. And so Jesus, his life was a study of contradictions. When he was hailed as he rode into Jerusalem, one day they they hailed him. By the end of the week, they were crucifying him. After a week of miracles and raising the dead, then Jesus was smitten and beaten to a bloody pulp and left hanging on a rugged cross. So this manger is a study of contradictions. Jesus was not treated in the way that a man who came to do what he did should have been treated. And so when God arranged a manger instead of a fine hospital or a palace, he was telling us that this child would be a study of contradictions and contrast. So you see, there's a lot of things that we could say about the delivery of this child. It was uncommon. It was highly predictable because the scriptures told so much about it. And yet, the contradiction is the scripture said so much. And yet, when he came, people didn't recognize who he was. He came into the world born of a virgin without a sin nature. And that's a contradiction because most people come into the world, or all people, I should say, come into the world as the seed of a man, born like all other people. He came into the world born into a feeding trough and into a cattle stall, wrapped in burlap was Jesus, instead of being put into a warm, velvety blanket and placed into a lovely bassinet. It's contradiction. It's not what we expect for the very Son of God. But what a delivery that this was. But you know something? Here here is really the very most important thing about this delivery. And that is that he came to deliver you and me. That's why he came. He was delivered into the world in order to bring about a new birth. You know what that is? That is a second delivery for you and me. That's how the Bible describes it, a new birth. When you're saved... You're delivered from a world of sin, delivered from your lost condition. You are a new creature. You're born again. That's what the Bible says. And so you have been delivered. Listen to these words of Paul in Colossians. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And so what delivers us? We are delivered by the blood of a sacrifice. We are born again. So when he was a baby, he was a boy, but he didn't have any blue blankets and anything like that. He didn't have any T-shirts that said, Daddy's Little Helper. Didn't have that. But he was born as a boy. He grew up to be a man. He lived better than a man. And he died more courageously than any other man. He was a savior, a baby boy, and they called his name Jesus. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we do thank you for a wonderful delivery. Not only the delivery of Jesus Christ into this world, the delivery up to the cross where he was crucified for us, but also, Lord, the delivery he makes for everyone who puts their faith in him. We have the new birth, born again because of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, in this time to really think about what Jesus came into the world to do. May we see him as a savior to be worshipped, to be adored, to be believed, and to be followed. Bless us in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please.